you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78, we'll be there in a minute. We're in uh, Titus, technically speaking, uh, and in Titus there is some great instruction on the formation of, of a local church and how to kind of establish some things. And one of the things they get into is uh, leadership in that church and what that leadership needs to look like. And one of the first characteristics that you use to, uh, to determine whether men are qualified to lead a church is how are they doing in their families? Are they pastoring and shepherding their families? Because if they're really not pastoring and shepherding their families, then they don't, they don't need to be leading anything in the church. That's the first and foremost um, issue. And that's an expectation on all believers and all men, but that much more, uh, you can't have a guy leading a church that's not living that out in his own family. And so he's unqualified if that's not happening. And so he gets into, in Titus chapter 1, some clear distinctions of what that looks like. And so we felt like it's a very important thing. It's great to talk about, hey, you've got to pastor your home, you need to lead your family, and um, here's what that looks like. But, but really, we wanted to slow down enough, take a pause from going through Titus to give as much formative instruction on what does that look like and how does that happen, uh, because this is really critical for us as a church. It's a big deal for us and how we do ministry and our ministry philosophy. And I've been involved in ministry for too long, youth ministry and collegiate ministry, and then the ministry and the rest of the church. And I've seen too many kids drop out or walk away from God uh, in their college years. And I've talked to too many people who are weeping over their teenagers that have walked away from God, maybe their junior, senior year, or when they graduated and living in rebellion, not really pursuing the Lord. And yet they grew up in church and they did what they were told to do, bring your kids to church every day. And yet it didn't work. And so they're thinking, man, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I tried to keep them busy. I, I, we did everything I could um, with them. We had them in all kind of different extracurricular stuff. We had them at church whenever we had an opportunity. I mean, we had a lot of stuff going on. It was, I, I'm not sure what we could have done different. And the reality is, as you see in this next chart, when you look at a given year, the church has, on average, the average church is about 40 hours in a given year to influence a life. That's about your standard, I'm, yeah, I go to this church involvement, about 40 hours a year. That's less than once a week. You get that. That's about how much the opportunity. Let's, let's be generous about, let's just say it's 80 hours. Say this is a really plugged in family. It's still 80 hours in a given year to undo all the things that they're learning and they're being taught and they're getting in all the other different places that the kids are absorbing and sponging up information and worldview and views on different things and influences in their lives. By contrast, look at the influence of parents. They have about 3,000 hours in a given year to pour into their kids' lives. About 3,000 hours in a given year. So who has greater opportunity? I feel like it's like an AT&T coverage uh, commercial here. with the white, you know. Who has the greater coverage? Yeah, who has a greater opportunity to impact kids? Is it, is it parents or is it the church? One, two, three. Clearly parents. Does that mean the church doesn't have responsibility? No, we have a responsibility, which is what I'm trying to do. We're trying to equip parents to do this, but to delegate that responsibility to the church is just not going to work. It's just not a wise and a smart use of your time. You have a very limited amount of time, and you've got to be really wise in how you um, utilize that time. So we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 6 last week, and he basically says in that passage, um, in your kids' lives, uh, we are to diligently teach the God's clear plan for spiritual information, for discipleship, for education in the Bible is Deuteronomy chapter 6. For the nation of Israel, he told 
through Moses, told the nation of Israel that I want you to diligently teach this stuff to your kids. And by the way, this was not instructed to the moms. Not that the moms don't have responsibility in it, but I just want just to call out the dads for a second. It's just your responsibility to make sure this is getting done, and you're the one who leads out in this. So the responsibility for us as men is to diligently lead our families. And in doing that, we want to, uh, he's saying, diligently teach this thing to your kids, these truths of the word of God to your kids as they rise up, as you're going through the day or on your way, and as you lie down. There's four different times. We talked about dinner time was a good time to do that. Meal time is a great time to influence your kids. As you're driving, Deuteronomy says as you're walking, we do that generally with cars now, as you're driving down the way, great time to have formative conversations with your kids and, and instruction, dinner time. When you lie down at night, tucking them in for bed, and when they rise up in the morning, how do you set the pace and direction, the vision for the day in your kids' lives? That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. This week, I want to focus a little more on the issue of discipline in our kids' lives. Discipline. How do we discipline our kids? How do we grow them up? Because the win for us would be be, uh, Psalms chapter 78. Psalms chapter 78. Flip your Bible to that space. Scripture... Psalm 78, the whole psalm is really good. Psalm 78 says, Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and we have known and that our fathers have told us we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And then he begins to describe them. He's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He's given Israel the word of God. He's given them his law. He's revealed his will to them as a nation, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, the stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then he continues on. Clearly, the responsibility is to say, okay, I'm going to take the things that my dad taught me and his dad taught him about walking with Jesus and about knowing God. And I'm going to diligently teach that to my kids with the end view, not that their life is changed in and of itself, but that their kids and their grandkids' lives are changed. I'm thinking generationally. I'm not thinking about the next generation. There's a big emphasis, kind of the buzz in churches nowadays is to shift to where we, we, yeah, we've got a next gen pastor, next generation pastor, which I don't think is bad. I think it's good. I think the concept of saying, hey, we're about generations and and this this particular staff person is going to focus on the next generation. It's not bad, but I think it's slightly short-sighted. I think we should be calling it the next generation's pastor, if anything, or be thinking about not just the impact of a generation, but generational impact generational impact how do we act impact the generations that are to come and that is psalms 78 let me tell you i mentioned this in the e-newsletter this week uh one of the scariest passages of scriptures in the bible is is you end up with the gospel with the book of of um, joshua 
And uh, he says, man, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. We're going we're gonna to serve the, the Lord with our house. And it, and it begins by saying, um, you know, be strong. God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. You know, be, don't depart from the right or the left from the word of God. Make sure that you digest it and you live it and you, you govern your life by the word of God. That's Joshua. And then in the beginning of Judges, it says there comes a generation who knew not God. Do you realize that Deuteronomy was written for Joshua and his generation? Diligently teach this stuff to your kids. As you're going through the day, as you rise up, as you lie down throughout the day, make sure you're teaching this stuff to your children. And then the next generation, after they go into the promised land, after they get the land flowing with milk and honey and all that stuff, they get into this incredible, beautiful, wonderful land. They're no longer in captivity under slavery. They are free, and they begin to worship false gods, and there, comes, there arises a generation who knew not God and did what is right in their own eyes. And that is the world we live in today. We are spectacular at creating generations of people who don't know God and do what is right in their own eyes. That in our postmodern culture is self-absorbed, radically individualized, that is trying to figure out their own faith and their own belief and their own thoughts by trying to toy with whatever beliefs that they come across. And they're going to try to pull all those beliefs together. Insert Jesus will be a part of it. It'll be, he'll be one of the gods that they worship, but he won't be the God. And that's the thing with Jesus. He's either your, your Lord or he's not. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, or, or don't love him at all. It's like me saying to Janet, I mean, you are my, you're, you're my wife, you're my favorite, but, but there's this eight other wives I have or girls that, you know, she would punch me in the lip so hard. That would not, that wouldn't go over that kind. I wouldn't even be able to finish the conversation before Janet would, would, Beat me up, man. That would be, wow. And, and yet we, we are unfaithful to God. We are Gomer in the book of Hosea. We are the wife of unfaithfulness who runs after uh, false lovers and leaves the, the father or the, the husband that loves us faithfully and he's willing to, to bankrupt himself and to cash out and take everything he has and to chase after us, to buy us out of slavery and to set us free. And that is the posture by which we parent our children. We want them to understand that, you know what? We're not calling you to be a perfect. Parenting for most people, and this is a real problem with the Bible uh, and how people misuse it, is we see parenting with the Bible as a way to take the law and beat our children into what we expect them to be. Let me give you just a simple phrase. I mean, your kid, kid runs in church. Don't run in the house of God. Don't run in the house. We, we are in the house of God. You do not run in the house. Listen, liars go to hell. Does it in Revelation? Did you know that? You ever use that one in parenting? Hope not. But uh, we, we, we say these different things harshly to our kids, and we try to beat them into submission. And here's the problem with this. We are thinking that they don't need a heart change. And this is why I want to I take a, a, give you a thought here. There's two kinds of parenting. There's outside-in parenting. That should be capitalized in Outside in parenting, and then there's inside out parenting. Outside in parenting says this. <clears throat> it says that we can, we can influence our children to be what we think that they're supposed to be. Okay, if we just put them in the right environment. So some of you, you use the rod and you use the board and you beat them into submission and that's the way. And it might not be literally that you're doing that, but, but you're, you're harsh. You use the word of God to force them into, to make them into what 
you think they're supposed to be, or you use anger, you use whatever manipulation, whatever. The other side of that is, is equally as dangerous is trying to just get them where they need to be outside in by trying to you know, sugarcoat or sugar literally them into whatever. I'm just going to love them and just, just steer them and give them whatever they need. And I don't want my kids to, to lack for anything. And so I'm going to give them whatever they need. I, I want them to grow up better than I grew up. And so I, I just want to give them the best atmosphere, the best, whatever makes them happy, whatever. May, and the child becomes the center of that parenting model. And you're doing whatever you can, putting whatever influences in their life that are going to make them happy and make them satisfied and make them uh, enjoy their life, thinking that that's somehow going to fix them. Oh, they, they, they like video games? I'll just give them more video games. That's great. Oh, they like to eat sugar cereal every single morning, and they want to eat donuts all the time? That's great. Okay, well, if it makes them happy, I want to do that. I, I'll give them that. Oh, they, they're not wearing the right clothes? They're not cool anymore? In school? Oh, well, then let me go out and buy whatever clothes that they need for school. I'll just keep doing and changing and doing whatever I need to get because I want to make sure that they're happy and they have a perfect... That's outside-in parenting. Both of those, whether you're beating your kid into it or you're trying to um, sugar them into it, neither of them are going to work. That's not the purpose of the law. Let me give you a quote by A.A. Hodge in his book on systematic theology about Pelagius. There was two competing theological perspectives many, many years ago between um, Augustine and Pelagius. And Augustine was saying that we need regeneration. And Pelagius was saying, no, no, we just really need better influences in kids' lives. Kids are born good. They're not bad. They're born inherently good. And so according to Pelagius, man was created a rational, free agent. But without moral character, he was neither righteous nor unrighteous. He was neither holy nor unholy. He had simply the capacity for becoming either. So he wasn't good. He wasn't bad. He wasn't righteous. He wasn't unrighteous. A child is born. They're born basically neutral, impressionable. There's no good or bad in them, what he's saying. Being endowed with reason and free will, his character depended upon the use of the use which, the, uh, which he made of those endowments. If he acted right, he became righteous. If he acted wrong, he became unrighteous. Translation. What you do determines your righteousness. If the kid does good things, the kid will be a good kid. If the kid does bad things, the kid will be a bad kid. So, if that is your philosophy in parenting then what you say is, you know what, I just need to steer my kid. I need to put the, the right environment. I need to get him with the right friends. I need to get him with the right whatever. I just need to, I need to create a little perfect Pharisee that knows the law and quotes the law and does everything they're supposed to do. And then they'll be good because if they do righteous things, then they'll be righteous. And if they do unrighteous things, then they'll, do, they'll be unrighteous. And the reality is that is not biblical. It is blasphemous. It is heresy. And it is in most Christian parenting books what most christian parenting books say that that's their philosophy that's a problem so what are we supposed to do well outside uh, inside out parenting looks a little different let me give you some scriptures that that kind of shows why this is a problem jeremiah seventeen nine. we know that it says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it this heart is deceitful and desperately wicked our hearts have a problem uh, Ephesians chapter two says, verse one says, we are born, we are born dead in our transgressions and iniquities. And it goes on to say, but God, by his grace, 
has saved us. For you're saved by grace through faith. But we are born dead in our transgressions, in our sins. That means that when we were born, you, your little baby, on the first day, Gibson's brought home, sweet little girl, okay, um, Adeline, she's just a tiny little thing, and she's, this might horrify some of you, but she's a little sinner, okay? So, somebody once said they're, they're like vipers in a diaper, okay? And anybody who disagrees with that has not had kids. I mean, they're real sweet and stuff, but as soon as they get old enough to where, I mean, we're talking months where they can establish their, their when I want to eat, I want to eat. That's what the kid's saying. They don't use those words. They just cry, right? But when they want their diaper change, they want their diaper change. When it's, they want their toy, they want their toy. I mean, you, the, the formative discipline that's going on in the baby room right now, I mean, there's kids fighting over, there's like gang fights in there right now. I mean, the training that we have to put our workers through to be able to, I mean, it is tough. They have tasers and nunchucks, and I'm kidding. They don't. I'm totally joking. They don't have any of that stuff. But, but you notice when you're wa- working with kids for a little while, really quickly, they're very selfish, and they are self-absorbed, and they need to be taught that they have a sinful nature. They're born uh, sinful and, and desperately wicked with their hearts. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 gives us some more insight into this. It says, there are none that are righteous, no, not one. No one who understands, no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside, together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or uh, snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is a full course, it's full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how we're born. That is how we are born. Clearly, behavior modification and classical conditioning are not the answer. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Well, how can you then also do good who are accustomed to do evil? You can't change yourself. You're unable to do that. And so what we've done is we've taken Pelagian and we've taken Pavlov. Remember him, Pavlov's dog? You ring the bell, the dog salivates, he wants his dinner, right? Um, and so every time you ring a bell because you feed him when the bell's rung, then you just ring a bell and he's going to respond. And so we use classical conditioning and behavior modification to parent our children. And the thought is they have a good heart, they just need to be taught on the outside. But we're never dealing with the real issue you have a heart problem too. You have a heart problem. And if you don't know you have a heart problem, just wait till you have kids. You will see the wickedness and selfishness of your heart really quickly when you see your children. And as they're growing up and as they have needs, and have they, they, kids don't really care about what your agenda is for the day. They don't care about what you want to do. They, really quickly with kids parenting, you start to realize, man, I, I, I can't do all the things I want to do. I, I have to really... I'm, for this season, for this short season that goes by fast, i got to really focus on these kids and pour into their lives. And then, not only that, then they become mirrors. And as they get older, you start to see your sin in their lives, and they're walking around, and the things you start to point out, you start realizing, that looks so familiar. That attitude, that behavior, that action, that thing, whatever they're doing, that looks so familiar. It seems like I've seen that. They learned that from my spouse. No, I'm just kidding. They learned that. <laughs> From me. And they have seen that stuff in my life. And so, you know, the biggest thing is, is kids are a wonderful gift to help change us 
And the best thing we can do as parents is give them a front row seat to God changing and transforming our lives as we seek to help them see their need for Christ and for the gospel to change and transform them. Inside out parenting, the goal is the heart. It must be changed. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Let me give you a couple quick quick verses there. And then I want to give you some principles on formative and corrective discipline. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the death and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. In other words, sin entered in through Adam. Yeah, he was the first one, but now we're all born in sin. Thomas said, in, in sin, um, my mother bore me in iniquities. And so we are all born in sin because of the first man. Now death has spread and sin has spread to all of us. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So the law reveals our sin. Used rightly, the, re- the law will reveal our sin. Let me jump down to verse um, 18. Therefore, as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So as one sin has condemned us all, one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, living a perfect life, dying in our place, that one act has resulted in the possibility of life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. So through Adam's sinfulness, all of us have been made unrighteous. Doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how old you are, we have all been made unrighteous. We've all been born sinful. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. Okay, get, get your mind around that. We don't, it's not, well, you know, I messed up, so now I'm a sinner. No, you were born a sinner. And we sin because that's who we are. We have hearts that are broken and are, are unrighteous and need to be uh, changed so that we can uh, be right with God. But yet through one man, God has remedied the situation. For as through one man's disobedience, many have sinned, uh, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. Let me read on. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but when sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he is saying simply is that the law doesn't create your sin. It just reveals it. And that's the purpose of the law. It's a measuring stick. The purpose of the law is to be a measuring stick, not to be a rod to beat people, okay? But it is something that we put as a standard. We realize, okay, I have not measured up to Christ's righteousness, and so this makes me, it confronts me with my need for somebody to help me. And so in, once I'm aware of this, now I can know that, yeah, through one man, sin entered the world. But through one man, the greater Adam, Jesus, he's provided salvation. And so now that I know I don't measure up, I, I realize, man, my heart is wicked. And I'm in need of some help. I am lost. Therefore, I need somebody to help me be found to find me, to, 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 to save me, to, to transform my life. I need a heart transplant. And that is where Jesus comes in. The law rightly understood 
shows us our need for Christ and leads us to the point where we are willing to repent of our sinfulness and our unrighteousness and put our faith and trust in Christ. No amount of environmental changes and external efforts are ever going to save and redeem you. You cannot redeem your children through their environments. I mean, we put people in jail all the time with the purpose of reforming them by giving them enough psychology and discipline and other things. And the reality is that you're not going to change a guy just by the vast majority of people that end up in jail, end up in jail again. The vast majority. Not everybody. The vast majority. Which is why so critical for the mission, the ministries that go into jails that help people understand that, hey, listen, your big problem is you need a heart change. The government never, is never going to be able to fix you. School system not going to be able to fix you. you. You need a heart change. You need heart transplant. No matter of psychology, all psychology is going to do is going to bolster the Pelagian lie that you just need to be better. You just need to be better. You just keep being better. That is called false righteousness, and Jesus calls it filthy rags. It will not save anybody. So there's inside-out parenting is the goal. Heart change. But formative and corrective discipline. Let me give you some thoughts on formative and corrective discipline. This is a lot of quick bullets, so get ready. Um, sharpen your pencils. Here we go. Let me, let me read a quote for you by uh, John Wesley. John Wesley said this, Immortal spirits whom God hath for a time entrusted to your care. He's talking about children. They are immortal spirits whom God has for a time entrusted in your care that you may train them up in all holiness, and fit them, prepare them, for the enjoyment of God in eternity. This is a glorious and important trust, seeing one soul is of more value than the world, all the world beside. Every child, therefore, you are to watch over with the utmost care, that when you are called to give an account of each to the Father of spirits, to to God, you may give your accounts with joy and not with grief. This is the important thing to understand. I'm not going to stand before God and give an account for your kids. I mean, I will as a pastor and how I led the church in these things. But ultimately, you're accountable for your kid. I'm accountable for my kids. And I want to stand before the Lord. And I want, there is no greater joy, according to the third uh, John, we're told no greater joy than for our children to walk with God. There's no great, that's the win. I don't care if my kids go to Harvard. I don't care if they get the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't care if the world ever likes them, loves them. I don't care what they do to get accolades of the world. What I do care, as we talked about last week, is that they know Jesus 100 years from now because most likely they're not going to be alive. And their relationship with Jesus is going to be a lot more important than whatever they did in their time on earth. I care that they know Jesus and that they live their life in such a way that they, they point as many people to Christ in their lifetime as they possibly can. I want my children to, to stand before the Lord one day and have hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of souls with them because of the way that they leveraged and lived their lives to point as many people to Christ as possible. Their GPA, (laughs) that's way down on the list of important. Is it important? Yeah, it's important. I want them to be articulate. I want them to be able to communicate. I want them to be able to, so, but, but I want my kids to have a good education so that they can articulate the gospel better, so they can explain their beliefs, so they can articulate a biblical worldview better. I don't really care about whether they get the scholarship or not. or whatever. That's, not, that's secondary. Not bad, but certainly not primary because we have immortal little souls that have been entrusted to us, and the way we raise them is critical, and the way we conduct ministry as a church is critical 
in trying to create the best environment to help them understand the gospel rightly. So, some principles in formative discipline. Formative discipline, what does that mean? Begins with the understanding that our greatest need is a new heart, regeneration. We must instruct our children, leading them to a right understanding of salvation. This is what unregenerate church membership means. We've got to instruct our children, leading them to a right understanding of salvation. We are not just managing our children. We're not just trying to manage them. The goal isn't to have them on a routine. It's good, but that's not the end goal. We are training them in the way of righteousness. So teach the Scriptures to your children. Proverbs is a spectacular thing to be eating on on a daily basis in your family. Proverbs is great. Teach them catechisms. James chapter 4, verse 4 through 3. Listen to this as it instructs us on, on conflict. Your, your kids are fighting. They're having fun. They fight with another kid on the, on the playground or whatever, or in Sunday school with the teachers with the tasers. Um, they're, they're fighting, and, and here's what it says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Why are they, why are they locking horns? What's the problem? Why is your daughter always getting a fight with this other girl? What, what's, what's going on there? Why is your son always... Is it not this... That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What is James saying? James is saying it's not the other girl's fault. It's not her problem. It's not. It's your girl's problem, your son's problem. It's their heart and the other person's heart, it's both of our hearts, are wicked and after their passions. And the reason they're having conflict is because they need a heart change. So wisely, the word of God doesn't go with, you know what you need to do? You need to fight this way or fight that, or you need to manipulate this way or you need to overcome them or you need to... James simply says, let's get to the heart. What, what's really going on? What's really going on? Let's, let's take the word of God and let's measure up and let's see what it reveals about yourself. What it says is, is, is there's some covet there's some desire for some things. You're wanting some fame or some popularity or whatever that you're trying to find identity in something other than Christ. And so you need to find that in Christ alone. You know, Pray. And the reason you don't have the things you want is because you don't ask for them. And when you do ask, you're asking for selfish things, not what God really wants to do in your life. So why don't you change how you pray? Instead of praying that you can conquer them um, or win or be the most popular, be whatever, let's pray that, that you can love the people that are hard to love in your life. Let's, let's pray that God will. This is parenting. It's formative. You've got to know the word of God and you've got to teach it. Let me give you another tool for parenting is catechisms. Catechisms. There's a great book we have available, some of them. Um, we don't make money on them. We're just trying to put some resources more convenient to you. And, uh, but this is tremendous. And it's called Truth and Grace Books. It's made for kids. You can start when they're two years old. And as they're growing up, um, you're teaching them some doctrine, theology, and, and the word of God. There's Scripture for them to memorize. There's some hymns for them to memorize that teach some doctrine. But then there's some catechism questions. And Tim, I will tell you, this has been the most helpful thing to me and our family uh, in teaching our kids about the things of God and about salvation, most specifically. Here's some of the things. Simple questions. Who made you? God made me. Catechisms are just questions and answers. Simple questions, simple answers. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all, for, uh, in all things? For his own glory. Um, how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. And then it gets down to, well, why ought you glorify God? This is so good. Why should you glorify God? Why should you obey mom and dad? 
because he made me and he takes care of me. Why should you obey mom and dad is is the same thing. Because they love me and they take care of me. That's that's why I obey mom and dad. Mom and dad has your best interest in mind. Teaching our kids these things. They're memorizing these things. And they're getting it hidden in their heart. Goes into the Trinity. Where is God? He's everywhere. Can you see God? No, but he can always see me. Um, Does God know all things? Yes, nothing can be hidden from God. But then he gets into the first parents and the fall and their need for salvation. They have a body and they also have a soul that will never die. Body will die. Soul will never die. What is sin? Transgression of the law of God. What does it mean? What is, it, what is meant by transgression? Doing what God forbids. What was the sin of our first parents? Eating the forbidden fruit. Because they did not believe what God had said. And so then he goes down to, what does sin deserve? The anger judgment of God. Can anyone go to, hell, to heaven with a, with a sinful nature? No, they can't. Our hearts have to be changed before we can be fit and we can be fit in, uh, before we can be fit for heaven. Funny story, as I was teaching this one to my children, um, can anyone go to heaven with a sinful nature? Um, the answer, no, our hearts must be changed before we can be fit for heaven. They would always say, before we can fit into heaven. Hearts must be changed before we can fit into heaven. I mean, no, it's actually a big place. You'll, be, you'll get in fine. It's, it's, it's the entrance and the, you know, it's, anyways. Um, so what is a change of heart called? Regeneration. Who can change the sinner's heart? The Holy Spirit alone. Again, you're teaching them and you're giving them a foundation, a track to run on. This is so much better than the church that has the fire engine baptistry and says, kids, do you want to go to heaven one day? Do you want to go to heaven? You, you, listen, mom and dad are going to be in heaven and Uncle Johnny's going to be in heaven. and everyone, Don't you want to be in heaven or do you want to go to hell by yourself and burn and fire? Okay, well, if you want to go to heaven, stand up. And then pray this prayer, and then we're going to have a baptism service, and you can be baptized in the fire engine baptistry. True story. The church actually had that. And, and, and it'll be great. And we, They know nothing of heart change. You scared them into making a decision emotionally where they don't even know their need for Christ and what he's saving them from. It's dangerous. I, I had my kids. We were at a baseball thing, and, and a guy was um, sharing the gospel. It was a kind of a clinic, and they uh, taught some fundamentals, and then a guy shared his testimony. It was really great. But Peyton Luke, five and six years old, and they're in this little massive kid sitting down. The guy explains the gospel, and then he says, okay, if one of you would like to, if any of you guys want to follow Jesus, and you want, then I want you to, everybody close your eyes, bow your head. I want you to, this is what he's telling, I want you to stand up. And so several of the kids stand up, and one of my kids stands up. Peyton actually stood up. Peyton stands up. And, and the guy says, you know, if you, wanna, if you stood up because you want to know Jesus, then I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to pray this prayer after me. And um, so he leads them in a prayer, and they're doing whatever. And then he says, okay, now if you stood up, you prayed the prayer, you raised your hand, stood up, prayed the prayer, lots of instructions, um, then I want you to go to this little room off to the side, and we're going we're gonna, to, Mr. Jason's going to talk, another guy on our staff, going to talk to you about um, knowing Jesus and the decision you made and give you a little card to fill out. And so I'm sitting back watching this whole thing and I'm watching my kid and I see my kid raising his hand and what's going on. The other kid's sitting next to him. Luke's sitting next to him. He's not doing anything. He says, all right, so uh, when I say amen, I'm going to pray for you. When I say amen, all of you that uh, raised your hand, stood up, prayed the prayer, go to the room. The rest of you stay here. So he prays. He says amen. Pate drops. Luke stands up, heads for the room. And, and, and he let's add insult to injury. The kids who stayed got pizza faster. The kids who were in the room had to give information and try to figure out their address, which most of them didn't even know at that age anyways. And they're in there trying to get all this information from the kids. And the rest of the kids are chomping on some pizza, having a great time. 
So Pate, you know, got to raise his hand, got whatever, and then he got pizza. Luke has to go fill out a card, and he didn't even know what he's in there for. And that is the fallacy and the problem with delegating this stuff to other people. Wouldn't it be more productive if we slowly grow our kids in understanding their need for Christ? You understand? Give them a foundation. Help them to understand the law and work with them through these things. Formative discipline shapes our children. And, and having some doctrine, some theology is tremendously powerful and helpful in that journey. Now, some of you are going, my three-year-old will not know what transgressions are. We'll get into that later. But the problem there, the issue there, is as your kids are little, just pack them full of information. And as they grow up, you can begin to help them understand that information they learned back when, what it means and how it works out in their life. Pack them full of information. Don't wait till they're able to connect dots before you start giving them information. Too late. Pack them full of information when they're, when they're younger. Teach them the Word of God. Pattern it for them in the way you do family and life and worship and home and pray together and read scriptures and read Proverbs and talk about things. And then as they get older, you can explain them more. But corrective discipline, that's formative discipline. Corrective discipline, the first thing is we want to reprove our children. We want to reprove our children. Reason together. To reprove. When the Bible says reprove, it means reason together. Argue. Judge. Help them understand. That's, re- that's a reproof. A rebuke is a little more stern. Reproof is, uh, w- listen, you need to understand, here's how, this is why this really wasn't good what you did. Whatever. Rebuke is, all right, hey, that was wrong. Let me tell you why. And you begin, and you kind of ramp up as, as the, based on the severity of the conflict or what they're doing. Rebuke lovingly. Three, three thoughts about that. Rebuke lovingly. Lovingly, loving reproof. And rebukes are gentle, not harsh. They're not violent. Loving reproof is private whenever possible. Whenever possible, uh, try to pull your kid aside and don't embarrass them in front of all of their friends. Loving rebuke should be private whenever possible. Loving reproof seeks the child's best interest, not the parent's convenience. The goal isn't that the parent looks good or um, is you know, doing it whenever... You don't want to be embarrassed by certain behaviors, so you are harsh. That's not really a good reason. It's not about your convenience. It's about the child's best interest. What's in the best interest for them? So rebuke lovingly. Rebuke sparingly. The main focus of parenting is formative training, not discipline, but discipline is necessary. But you don't discipline for everything. Uh, In fact, a helpful tool on that is to think about is, is the action that you're disciplining, is it childishness or is it really disobedience? A lot of things kids do is just childishness. Running in the building, childishness. Now, if you tell them five times to stop running and they look at you and then they start running again, that's disobedience. Take them to a room, tell them to get the stick and take care of things. But um, lovingly. But, but separate the two. A lot of times, and, and listen, on the fly, parents, I, I am the worst. We're all bad at this. We, it's hard in the moment we think of, you know, that really was childishness after we've already disciplined them harshly, right? And so we really need the Holy Spirit to be controlling us and directing us that we're not raging in our parenting constantly, but that we are careful and productive in how we do things. So rebuke sparingly, rebuke the sin, not the child. It's the heart and the sin issue, not the child. The kid's not, you are so bad. You're a bad child. You are a bad, bad kid. That child is not a dog. It's a child. Immortal little soul, okay? 
And do not tell them they are bad. They have a heart that needs to be changed. Yes. Deal with the sin. Don't condemn the child. Condemn the sin. Deal with the sin. Rebuke the sin, not the child. And then there's the issue of corporal punishment, which we could spend a whole sermon on that. Uh, Let me just say, Proverbs 22, if you don't think you should spank your kids, Proverbs 22, 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Um, Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. But to say you shouldn't discipline your kids, that was never an issue up until the last 20 years. In fact, when I was in elementary school, my principal, I never had to meet him with this, but my understanding, the principal had a board, it was what it was, in his office for kids that were really, really bad, they had to go meet the principal's, uh, the principal. In fact, I, I would say 15 years ago, this was happening in some schools in some states. Now it's like the worst thing you could possibly do is lay your hand on a child. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. But corporal punishment is certainly biblical and right. It's literal. We should do it, but it should be done lovingly, not angry. Lovingly, not angry. Proverbs three eleven says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son whom he delights. The best way we have found to do it, learn from other people, is when we discipline our kids with uh, corporal discipline. Number one, do not do it in anger. Do it when you can control the situation. Take them and take the child and, and, and sit them down and say, look, okay, talk about what they did that was wrong. Sit them in your lap. Here's what you did that was wrong. That's why you should have done this thing. And, and we're going to have to discipline you. For this and so um, put their their hands on so they're not blocking put their hands and make them that's part of the discipline is that they submit themselves to your leadership and your um, authority that's critical you just I, sometimes i've added a hundred spank not that many but a couple spankings to my kids because they would not submit and so then you spank them enough to where it hurts but not in anger and rage and not to break their femur or leave big marks or whatever. You're not trying to hurt your kid. You're just trying to discipline him. It needs to sting. It should sting. But nonetheless, after that, what is incredible, and any parent who's done this understands this, what does your kid do? They come to you, mom, dad. They want to be restored. And so you take them and you put them in your lap. This is important when they're young. If you wait till they're 16, this isn't going to work. Put them in your lap. Who am I? Mom or your daddy? Does daddy love you or does daddy not love you? <laughs> daddy loves me. So, so daddy loves you. So, did, did, I'm not spanking you because I, I don't love you. You did something was wrong and God has called me as a parent. He has told me that I have to, if I love you and you do something wrong, I have to teach you what is right. You, you can't do that. You, that's not nice. That's not right. Here's why it's wrong. This is why I disciplined you. Do you understand? Okay. I forgive you, I love you, you're restored, you're reconciled. You start that when they're really little. Okay, we start it with our kids when they're grabbing the spoon. A little pat on the hand. Okay, we don't go through the big speech. At that point, we're just telling them, it's not, you're not the center of the universe here. You're not going to control our household, you little viper in a diaper. And then we begin to teach them. We begin to instruct them. And so that is uh, corporal punishment. Authority and influence. Understand this. When you start off with your kid and you bring them home, you have incredible authority. Incredible. You are the parent. You have all authority over them. 
all power, but you have very little influence. Okay, very, very little influence when they're little. Don't do that. You have power to make them do it, but you don't have a lot of influence on them. But as they grow, your influence begins to grow if you have a healthy relationship with your kids. But your authority is going to slowly start to diminish. And there comes a point where at 18, you, you don't really have a lot of authority. They can pretty much do whatever they want to do. But hopefully, if you have been doing discipline right and teaching them the Word of God right and growing them and really pouring their life and you have that relationship, you're going to have some great influence in their kids for the rest of their life. So you've got to think in terms of, man, you really get to hit this stuff. Some of you guys are years into this and you're a little far into this and you have not really established authority and you don't really have the influence you need to have and you're, you're going to have to catch up for lost time. But understand that in the back of your head as you're doing these things and growing in these things. The goal is to get our kids to a point where they know their need for Christ. They need heart change. Not just to make them do what we want them to do. We want them to see their need for Christ, that they would repent, that they would believe in Jesus. That is the goal. And here's the thing. Your kids don't need perfect parents. They need parents in process. They need to see you repenting of your sin, you confessing your sin. And as you're doing that and they see God, they have an upfront seat of seeing God change and transform your life. Now you have the posture and the ability to influence your kids and help them grow and bring them to a point where they need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need to do what is impossible apart from your help. God, there's, we could spend months on talking about these things and, and, and just scratch the surface. And Father, the reality is, is none of us can do any of this apart from your spirit controlling us, empowering us, giving us the wisdom. And so, Father, I pray in these next moments, if, if we have some bad parenting um, that we have been guilty of, whether it is parenting of, bad parenting of neglect or whether it is uh, being too harsh, or whether it's trying to conform actions and not really get to the heart. Give us wisdom. Help us to be students of your word. Help us to understand how the gospel changes us, that it might change our kids. Father, I pray that we would see a harvest of kids walking with Jesus, being raised in such a way that they will easily be able to point the generations to come, their kids and their grandkids, Jesus, that we would lay down today, that we would begin to lay down in our families the foundations that that our kids need, that we would see generational change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.